Talking about the ever-amazing Spider-Man in comics, numerous runs get labelled as classics, whereas others, rightly or wrongly, slip through the cracks. With Spider-Man, it's easy to say, everything you need to know about the character is right there in the early Stan Lee-Steve Ditko issues, and whilst this has some validity, it ignores the longer history of the character. Writer Jerry Conway successfully matured Peter and his supporting cast and deserves a lot of credit for that. Roger Stern managed to take a back-to-basics approach and still managed to make it feel fresh and new. David Michelini and Todd McFarlane reinvented the look and feel of the character for a new decade. However, within these first 300 or so issues, a lot of writers took a stab at Spider-Man, and even some of the lesser runs have their fans. With that in mind, recent Marvel sales on Comixology have allowed me to garner a complete run of the amazing Spider-Man Marvel Masterworks books, running from Volume 1 through to the most recent release, Volume 19, which covers issues 193 to issue 202 of The Amazing Spider-Man, plus two annuals, Amazing Annual Issue 13, and Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Issue 1. Masterworks Volume 19 features the writings of Marv Wolfman for the majority of its stories, and Wolfman's run on the character ran from issue 182 to 204. Wolfman took over from Len Wein and immediately started concocting a long-form storyline that essentially kicked over the tables from the past and started Peter Parker on a new chapter of his life. This uprooting of what had gone before begins in Wolfman's first issue, where he has Peter ponder the direction his life is going in, which results in his proposing to longtime girlfriend Mary Jane Watson after fighting two rather forgettable villains, the Big Wheel and Rocket Racer. Nothing dates a character more than them being based upon a fad of the times. Exhibit A, my lord, Razorback, who was based on the CB craze of the 1970s, and whilst skateboarding has matured over the years, there's something very 70s about Rocket Racer as well. Anyway, Wolfman sets up his room in these early issues very well. Mary Jane rejects Peter in issue 183 and then pretty much disappears from the series for a while outside of some cameos. I don't know what Wolfman had against Mary Jane, who Conway had developed rather nicely, but he shuffles her off the board to reintroduce Betty Brant, Peter's girlfriend from the early days of the strip. In issue 184, Betty is waiting in Peter's apartment for him dressed in a short mini-dress, and announces that her marriage to Ned Leeds is over, and promptly wastes no time announcing that she's hot for Peter, being all over him like an outbreak of psoriasis. In issue 185, Peter graduates college. Eh, almost. See, Peter forgot about a phys ed class, and he's missing one credit. Still, it's a done deal, and Wolfman closes the door on another important aspect of Peter's life, as he's been at Empire State University since issue 30. This issue is also the last for artist Ross Andrew. Andrew was the regular Spider-Man artist for five years, and his contribution is very much overlooked. Issue 186 has Spider-Man cleared of the death of Norman Osborn, and introduces Keith Pollard as artist on the series. Pollard is a much underrated and forgotten Spider-Man artist, although he does swipe from Ditko an awful lot. With the past consigned to the bin and loose ends tied up, Wolfman is allowed to start his story properly in issue 189. Aunt May is in hospital, again, and J. Jonah Jameson is seriously cracking up, which leads into a man-wolf story featuring early Spider-Man art by John Byrne. 
Jim Mooney's heavy inks do burn no favours, but issue 189 is more famous for being the one where Peter shags a married woman, Betty Brandt. Peter also starts working for the Daily Globe in these issues, rather than the Daily Bugle. These are all pretty good. Wolfman ramps up the unfortunate side of Peter's life, if perhaps being a little too down on his luck, but his focusing on how being Spider-Man has really messed Peter's life up is a steady and long-lived part of the strip. Readers were hopeful for good times ahead. Unfortunately, what follows is a little bit of a mixed bag. Issue 193 is the first in Amazing Spider-Man Masterworks Volume 19 and is entitled The Wings of the Fearsome Fly, written by Marv Wolfman with art by Keith Pollard, as are all issues here, unless otherwise mentioned. Spider-Man is fretting that Jonah knows his secret due to Marvel ripping off the Defiant Ones last issue and having Jonah and Spider-Man be chained together for the night. Jonah is acting a little weird, and Peter finds himself fired from the bugle, which is fine, as the already mentioned Daily Globe is headhunting him. Robbie Robertson is in the stew, though, for giving Peter one last chance against Jonah's implicit instructions. Wolfman has a good handle on the characters, and the little moments, like Pete having a cold due to swinging around in the snow, are nice classic touches. The fly storyline is nothing to write home about, but there is a subplot where a mysterious man is ransacking the Parker homestead in Forest Hills. This is a subplot that will bubble along and eventually come to a boil in issue 200. Other subplots are handled well. Mary Jane makes one of her last appearances, telling Peter to lose her phone number, the spectre of Spider-Man interfering in Peter's life again, and Ned Leeds shows up to give Peter a piece of his mind, which is fair enough, as Peter has given his wife a lot of his cock. Ned punches Peter out and storms away with Betty. Betty seems to have no say in any of this, which is a tad insulting to her character. At May, meanwhile, is now being looked after in the Restwell nursing home by a Dr. Ludwig Reinhardt. He leaves May in her room after a routine checkup, only to find the man who was burgling May's home earlier is sat in Reinhardt's office, pointing a gun at him. And you can award yourself a Merry Marvel No Prize if you recognise the name Ludwig Reinhardt. This is all pretty good material. It's becoming a tad melodramatic, but Wolfman was a very melodramatic writer, and Spider-Man is a character you can get away with this kind of thing with. Mostly. As I said, the fly plotline is standard stuff, but the character work is impressive and well put together. Issue 194 is an important one in the Spider-Man mythos, featuring, as it does, the first appearance of the Black Cat. In the introduction to this volume, Wolfman mentions his original idea for the Black Cat, aka Felicia Hardy, was as a villain for Spider-Woman, hence her name being Hardy, to Spider-Woman's Jessica Drew. But that never panned out, so he saved the character for here, figuring that Spider-Man didn't have a lot of female villains. I'm pretty sure that Catwoman was an influence as well. Never let the Black Cat cross your path, and issue 195's Nine Lives Has the Black Cat covers a lot of ground. In addition to introducing a new character, Wolfman is juggling a lot of ideas throughout this two-part story. Some of it works brilliantly. The Black Cat is a cool character, although Wolfman's insistence on making Spider-Man a player is a little bit too obvious. Not only does Peter have Betty throwing herself at him, but both Black Cat and a new character, April May, make a pass at him as well. Whilst April May, which is a terrible name, will never really grow up into be anything important, the Black Cat is an interesting character, even outside of the costume. Obsessed with her father, Hardy has major Oedipus issues, and all she really wants is for her mother and father to be reunited and have him be allowed to die at home, which he does. This ties in nicely with the other major event in this issue. 
Peter receiving a telegram informing him of his Aunt May's passing. Sadly, the scenes that don't work too well are the Peter Parker moments. Peter breaking his arm whilst out as Spider-Man and dropping his lunch as a result is typically Peter, although if I saw someone struggling like that, I would help them out. However, there is a lot of melodramatic overreaction to Peter from Flash and Harry that is a major step back in their evolution. Back in the day, Peter could be standoffish and occasionally arrogant, but Flash and Harry treated him like shit, so they deserved it. This was fine when they were all 16, but they've matured over the years. So if Peter is having a bad day now, Flash and Harry would not act like they used to. They would be understanding of whatever it is that's going on in Peter's life. Peter is also an asshole in these scenes, arguably getting what he deserves. Betty and Ned discussing the marital woes at work is also silly, but this is something that always bugs me in fiction, particularly soap operas all the time. Why don't these people discuss all this privately instead of in public? I know it makes better drama, but it also makes no sense. Betty's reasons for leaving Ned are also very stupid. Ned has been a roving reporter going off on assignment for as long as we've known the character, so to complain about that as a reason for the marriage breakup seems a little bit silly. She knew what she was signing up for. Ned and Betty even confront Peter about it at the ESU cafeteria. Still, for all the problems, this scene at least works. Peter plays the bastard to get Betty to leave him and go back to Ned. Although typical of Peter's look, no one realises that is what he's doing until much later. Still, overall, this issue just about passes muster, largely due to the ending, which is heartfelt, and starts a short tradition of killing the black cat in every appearance, only to bring her back later. Keith Pollard must have been struggling with the deadlines, as last issue was a many hands inking production, and 196 is penciled by Al Milgram. Requiem essentially concerns itself with the death of Aunt May, and Wolfman handles Peter's grief very well. He rides the emotional roller coaster, ultimately leaving all the details of May's death in the hands of Dr. Reinhardt, as Peter tries to learn to deal with the bad news. If all this is a tad overly melodramatic, well, that's because it's a 70s Marvel comic written by Marv Wolfman. His dealings with Flash and Harry are a tad more believable in that Peter actually tells them what's going on, instead of pulling his usual trick of not saying a damn thing and having them think he's a massive jerk, something that rings emotionally true compared to the Betty drama of the last few issues. Peter has now settled into his new role as a graduate teacher, something explored over an amazing sister title, Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man. We see him blankly go through the motions of his day, cancelling his classes, and dealing with other everyday stuff that doesn't go away simply because somebody has died. He and Anna Watson visit May's casket, and for the first time Peter's spider sense goes off near Dr. Reinhardt. I felt this was a bit of a misstep. Whilst it does set up that something is rotten in the home of Restwell, I also felt that this was the wrong time to flag this up, undermining May's death. Better, I think, to let the audience believe she was dead. The Spider-Sense tingle is a tad too obvious here, and may have been better a few issues ago. There's a neat heart-to-heart between Robbie Robertson and Peter, where we learn that the Robertsons had another child who died when only six months old, a new piece of backstory that really solidifies Robbie's place in the supporting character pantheon. Peter, still lost in grief, loses himself in his memories and returns to the old homestead in Forest Hills, which I thought May had sold at this point, but she's apparently now using it as payment for staying in the nursing home. Peter finds the house ransacked. This shock snacks Peter out of his funk and he is able to think straight for the first time in days. Slowly, his brain manages to put it all together and he remembers where he's heard the name Ludwig Reinhardt before. 
Switching to Spider-Man, he races back to Restwell, only to be attacked by the Kingpin, because we are three issues away yet from the big reveal. This was one of the better Wolfman issues, as it really strips away the superheroic stuff to focus on Peter the Man rather than the Spider. He handles the talky moments well and they feel quite real and affecting, despite the odd moment of Peter raising a fist to the moon in melodramatic anger. Like the Buffy episode, The Body, this also doesn't shy away from the idea that death in the family only stops your world. The rest of it keeps on turning. It's also in this immediate aftermath where you need space and time that many things suddenly need dealing with, things that Peter really isn't in any position to handle at the moment. It's quite sad, therefore, that the next issue, The Kingpin's Midnight Massacre, is a rather pointless time waster. The Kingpin's wife, Vanessa, has given our favourite underworld crime lord an ultimatum. Get out of crime within 48 hours, or never see his wife again. Instead of seeing to his affairs, scurrying away some cash, and generally being a decent husband, Wilson Fisk, the kingpin of crime, instead decides to spend the time hunting down Spider-Man because he hasn't yet been adopted as a Daredevil villain. Other than three panels reminding us about Reinhardt and the mysterious man who has been suspiciously interested in May Parker, this is really quite a tedious fight issue with no relevance to the ongoing story, no subtextual relation to said story, like maybe the Kingpin had recently had a death in his own family and he was dealing with it, and really no real reason for being unless I'm missing something. It's 20 pages of Spider-Man having the shit beaten out of him because his head really isn't in the game, and the Kingpin not killing him at the end because Vanessa asked him not to. At least Keith Pollard came back for the art. Sadly, this doesn't last long, as issue 198, Mysterio is deadlier by the dozen, sees Sal Buscema fill in on art duties. Picking up where we left off, New York's finest finds Spider-Man beaten and bloodied and take him to New Hope Memorial Hospital, where a kindly doctor patches Peter up whilst refusing to remove his mask. Back at the Restwell nursing home, Mr. Mr. Guest tells Reinhardt about the millions of dollars worth of treasure supposedly at the Parker homestead. Reinhardt, actually Quentin Beck, aka Mysterio, decides he's finally had enough of this shit and gasses the burglar. For this is who this is. The man who burgled the Parker household and killed Uncle Ben all those years ago. Having turned the tables, Reinhardt takes time out to explain his whole diabolical plot to the burglar in true Austin Powers fashion. When last we saw Mysterio, he wasn't Beck, but another man, and Beck was believed to be dead. He let the world think that he was dead, because he was tired of having his silly crimes ruined by Spider-Man, so he did the only sensible thing he does in this entire story. He jacked it all in. He adopted the name Ludwig Reinhardt once again, an alias that had served him well back in Amazing Spider-Man issue 24 and started a scam at Restwell, whereby through his simple tricks and nonsense he would con people into signing over property and money to him to pay for their cur. When they die, receivership passes over to him, all legal-like. And over time, he has amassed over $8 million. Now, first of all, congratulations if you recognised the name Ludwig Reinhardt without looking it up. You're as sad as I am. Second, let's take a moment to clarify. Nobody knows Mysterio is doing this. He has made no wrong moves. Nobody suspects a thing. At this point in the story, he doesn't know that Spider-Man has put the name Ludwig Reinhardt together with the alias Mysterio used way back when. 
He's onto a cushy number here. The sensible thing to do would be kill the burglar and disappear. Eight million dollars is a lot of money. More than enough in 1979 to piss off to the Maldives and live happily ever after. But no. What Mysterio elects to do is keep the burglar alive because he may be beneficial in the long run and then go after the treasure in the Parker home himself. This is remarkably stupid, even by supervillain logic. Even if we allow for greed, the burglar does state that the treasure is worth billions, keeping the burglar alive makes no sense. The next bit makes very little sense either. Spider-Man legs it from the hospital and returns to the nursing home, which is where he was headed before the kingpin used him as a punching bag for an issue. He arrives at the nursing home to be confronted by loads of Mysterio's illusions, but Mysterio had no need to plan these illusions because he doesn't know anyone's onto him. Now, even if we allow for the fact that Mysterio has a, a few illusionary devices around, just in case, as we get to the end of the issue, we learn Mysterio was planning for Spider-Man to arrive. Why would he know that Spider-Man was coming? See, at this point, Spider-Man has put together that Reinhardt is an alias, but this doesn't take away from the idea that May is still dead. Reinhardt could, had he kept his head, convince Spider-Man this was all legit, and then done a fast fade. He could actually have said he was going straight. Even with the burglar dead, Reinhardt could claim that. Spider-Man has no evidence otherwise, and that the burglar was making Reinhardt do all this for unknown reasons, which is true. Even if the burglar is alive, this is still the smart play. Instead, Mysterio goes back on his whole reason for abandoning being a costume criminal in the first place. Mysterio was the first supervillain in the history of supervillains to wise up, and he blows it for no reason at all. There were far more sensible ways to go about this. For example, kill the burglar, that's just a smart thing to do. Then walk over to Forest Hills, or catch a bus, or the tube, or a taxi, or whatever, and then look at the house quietly, because, lest we forget, May's death means Reinhardt owns the house legally. At this point, Mysterio still has no reason to suspect Spider-Man knows anything, so keeping this all on the down low would just simply be the intelligent thing to do. After getting to the house and seeing that it's a mess, Mysterio could then simply decide to wander away $8 million richer. But instead, Mysterio gets a case of the stupids and fucks all this up. He goes down the usual throw lots of silly illusions at Spider-Man route when he was acting like a smart man for once. Hell, he even looked in past issues like he was actually doing a good job as head of the nursing home. Sure, he was a con man, but he was still looking after all these elderly people and making them feel comfortable in their twilight years. <sighs> this mess carries on into 199. Now you see me, now you die. Spidey is left for dead, and Mysterio teases the burglar that the treasure will be his. <laughs> Mysterio leaves, and the burglar escapes by smashing a mirror and using the shards of glass to cut his bonds. There's a really sloppy piece of art here, as in one panel... The burglar is nowhere near the mirror, and in the next, he's close enough to smash it with his leg. Unless, of course, the burglar is in reality Mr. Fantastic. Spider-Man obviously escapes the illusory death traps and goes home, where the past couple of days catch up with him and he falls asleep for a good 24 hours. 
Later on, he's making breakfast in his Spider-Man boots, pants and web shooters when Flash, Harry, Shah Shan and Liz Allen drop by. Now, I can buy that Peter manages to web his dressing gown through the living room to the kitchen without any of his house guests seeing it. It's dumb, but I'll go with it. What I can't buy is that he sits down with all his friends and they chit-chat and not a single one of them notices his boots. They are drawn in plain view on more than one occasion and nobody comments on them. Maybe they think Peter has peculiar taste in slippers. In other respects, this is a nice scene with Peter and his chums coming to an accord over Peter's behaviour recently and Harry even realising that Peter was deliberately being a shit to Betty to get her to go back to Ned. Apparently this was all for naught as Betty has announced her separation from her husband. With everyone BFFs again, Spider-Man goes to May's house because he doesn't really have any other leads. Fortunately, Mysterio has been searching the house for well over 24 hours and he's still there. They fight for a bit and Mysterio then runs back to the rest while nursing home. Spider-Man follows him, but Mysterio shoots Spider-Man with a dart that apparently kills him. Mysterio decides that the treasure, whatever the hell it was, no longer exists and buggers off. Spider-Man's batting average in this story is pitiful. Both the Kingpin and Mysterio get away and he lets the Black Cat die. Nice going, hero. Issue 200, The Spider and the Burglar, has a magnificent cover by John Romita. Just wonderful. Go and look it up. I'll wait. We open as Spider-Man realises that Mysterio passing gas has robbed him of his superpowers. He walks forlornly out of the nursing home and trundles home in the rain. From somewhere, he has purloined a raincoat and, depending upon which panel you look at, pants and shoes, or he's coloured his blue leggings brown. There's a lot of sloppy stuff like this in the Wolfman run, perhaps a consequence of a writer editing his own work. Meanwhile, the burglar has cut his bonds and escaped. Peter has also wandered back to the Forest Hills home he grew up in, which is still a mess. Peter has at no point thought to call the police about the ransacking of his aunt's house, instead choosing to stand alone in the middle of the trashed living room looking moody. Granted, if he had reported the damage straight away, as any normal person would, then this story couldn't happen. Peter discovers from Anna Watson, May's next-door neighbour, that May's house was rented out, so he pops off to the company that was subletting the house and discovers that it was rented by the one man he never expected. Yes, the burglar who killed Ben Parker. Now this is interesting. Peter clearly recognises the name of the man who killed Uncle Ben, as he would, yet at no point in this story does Wolfman share that name with us, the reader. I think, although I could be wrong, that it was only many years later that we would learn his surname was Carradine, and from the movies, that his first name was Dennis. An odd omission, that. Peter then goes to all the effort to put his costume on to swerve vengeance to then have to take it off again, as he doesn't have any superpowers. I know that melodrama is the stock in trade of many comics, but Wolfman is really taking it to histrionic levels here. There is quite a tense scene where a powerless Peter Parker uses his webs to gain access to a television studio vaults that really amps up the vertigo. It's very good at demonstrating just how amazing Spider-Man is. Peter is going through video footage to try and figure out what all this means when he hears a cry for help. Popping his head out the door, he sees a security guard trying to stop a thief. Unlike the Peter of years ago, this Peter doesn't hesitate to stop the thief, in contrast to the Peter of but a few issues ago who let somebody get mugged because he was busy. Despite his lack of spider powers, Peter makes an impressive rugby tackle and offers an equally impressive right hook, which takes down the thief. Anyway, in an astonishing coincidence, this is the same security guard whose plea Peter ignored all those years ago. What are the odds of that? 
Peter returns home now fully aware of why May's house was ransacked, only he find the burglar waiting for him. Again, for a man suddenly without powers, Peter makes an impressive attack, leaping clear across the room and throat-punching Caradine, I'm clearly bored of calling him the burglar, with one hand and squeezing his wrist with the other, causing him to drop the gun. He then punches him clear across the room, before again setting upon Caradine with a view to throttling him to death. Again, for a man with no superpowers, Peter is doing pretty fine for himself. Caradine manages to clock Peter with the butt of his gun and takes him to the warehouse where Spider-Man caught him all those years ago. Why he doesn't take him to Maze, I have no idea, other than there wouldn't be any symbolism to the story. Caradine ties Peter up in the basement and then spends two pages telling Peter stuff he already knows for the benefit of us, the readers. Apparently, whilst in jail, Caradine was cellmate with Dutch Malone, an old-time criminal type who was brought down in exactly the same way Al Capone was by exactly the same man, Elliot Ness. Yet another massive coincidence. Apparently Malone used to own May's house and left behind a shit ton of money and or treasure, the story isn't quite clear on which, and Caradine bitch slaps the crap out of Peter simply because he's a bastard. He really is actually, there is no redeeming Caradine for this, he's a thoroughly nasty piece of work. Sure is a coincidence that Malone should happen to be placed in the same cell as the man who would kill the man who would become Spider-Man's uncle, isn't it? It's also another wonderful coincidence that May would be in a nursing home at the exact right time for Caradine to rent the house. Peter refuses to talk, and Caradine suddenly realises he has the perfect way to get Peter to loosen his lips, so he buggers off so that Peter can snap the bonds he's tied up with, shattering the chair he is sat upon and tearing off his clothes in a very dramatic manner. Apparently Peter only doesn't have superpowers when it suits the plot. One such time is the next scene. Peter switches to his costume to follow Caradine to the Restwell nursing home. Peter struggles to leap onto a bus and stay on the roof without his powers. Inside, Caradine returns to where Mysterio kept him captive to retrieve... something. Spider-Man tries to stop him, but Caradine shoots him. Caradine then makes his way back to the warehouse with his package, and Spider-Man, who isn't dead, follows him, making this scene completely redundant. Caradine bursts into the warehouse with... May Parker?! I know, I was shocked as well. May and Caradine reminisce. It was nice of Caradine to wear the exact same clothes he wore in Amazing Fantasy 15, just for this very special occasion, wasn't it? In this telling of the story, May was with Ben when he was shot, and he died in her arms. I think, but can't be sure, that this is different from other tellings of the tale. Anyway, this frail old lady who's been one heartbeat away from death and all the time we've known her seems perfectly okay here after being drugged, placed in a coffin, tied up in a basement, dragged across town, and told her nephew is dead. She seems somewhat less than frail to me. Spider-Man arrives, still powerless, remember, and jumps down to the rafters onto the burglar, a jump of at least 20 feet. He also manages to dodge three gunshots at close range. He then kicks the snot out of Caradine, who says, It's not fair. I've got a weak heart. This is a ruse, or is it? And he sucker punches Spider-Man. But Spider-Man has had enough of this shit, and he fights back like a tiger. Caradine asks aloud, why the fuck Spider-Man cares about any of this? And in a replay of Batman's origin from 1940, Peter whips off his mask to reveal his identity. In the same room Aunt May is in. Really? Peter, look, she's just over there. Also this really signpost that Caradine's gonna die. Caradine manages to flee and Peter displays remarkably adept agility once again for someone without superpowers. He leaps, dodges, dives and punches at Caradine. 
Caradine eludes Peter, though, and Peter continues to chase him through the darkened warehouse. Spider-Man, though, continues to taunt Caradine, making him more panicky, sweatier, and more dangerous. This is actually a really good scene, well-paced by artist Keith Pollard, and culminates in Peter telling Caradine that it's over. He's going to jail. Caradine replies by having a massive heart attack and dying on the spot. Oh, where to begin? First, May actually being alive is a massive cop-out. If Wolfman really wanted this story to shake things up, he should have let her be dead. I think the readers would have accepted it here, even more so than issue 400, where May would again die. For real. Allegedly. Second, in a story designed to eliminate the coincidence of a burglar from Queens robbing a house in Forest Hills, this show has an awful lot of coincidences in it. Third, so does Peter have superpowers or not? Because he manages to pull off a lot of pretty dicey moves, if not. Had they returned intermittently, then this would be fine. But Peter loses his powers at the top of the issue, and they aren't mentioned again until the last page, where they miraculously return. Fifth, why is this issue so violent? This isn't comic book fighting. This is gruesome, blood-spattered stuff, with Caradine beating on Peter in a scene similar to Reservoir Dogs, only without the ear cutting. Yes, it may be realistic, but the issue drips with over-the-top melodrama on every other page, so clearly realism isn't what Wolfman was going for. In fact, the melodramatics are almost laughable in places, giving this issue a real tonal problem. Sixth, are we ignoring that Peter revealed his secret identity to a man whilst May was sat right there? The epilogue reveals that the treasure was eaten by Silverfitch, which, I'll be honest, I didn't know existed when I read this as a kid, so this was all for nothing. On the last page, scripted by Stan Lee, Spider-Man's powers are back with no real explanation. It's also not explained how May will get a house back, it was signed over to Reinhardt to pay for her treatment, nor how Peter will explain to friends and families that May isn't dead. Presumably, May's resurrection will open investigation into Reinhardt's activities at the nursing home, and everything he did will be investigated and overturned. I wasn't really a big fan of this issue, as you may have guessed. There are just too many problems with it for me to give myself over to even enjoying it on a superficial level. However, Amazing Spider-Man 200 regularly polls highly in fanpick best of, so it's possible that I'm just missing something. Next up, there are two annuals. The Amazing Spider-Man Annual 13, written by Wolfman with art by John Byrne and Terry Austin, and the second Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 1, written by Bill Mantlow with art by Rich Buckler and Jim Mooney. These are interesting examples of the first kind of comics crossover, whereby the story starts and concludes in the first issue, but the villain, in this case Dr. Octopus, gets away, leaving a loose strand for the other annual to pick up. Both can be read as standalone tales, as Doc Ock is the only connective tissue, although it does beg the question what Marvel will do when they get to this stage with the spectacular Spider-Man masterworks. Will they publish both again? The Arms of Doctor Octopus is a much better Marv Wolfman story than issue 200, aided by some career-best art from Byrne and Austin, in one of only two times they worked on a Spider-Man story together, the other being Marvel Team-Up issue 79. This is a pretty good mystery story about Kent Blake, an FBI agent who turns up at Spider-Man's door, figuratively speaking, asking Spider-Man to investigate the suicide of an agent. Blake insists it wasn't suicide, it was murder. Peter goes undercover as a criminal named Babyface Parker to find out what happened. Simultaneously, Dr. Octopus is looking for another lowlife, Jimbo Ryan, who has stolen something of vital import to Ock. Ryan was the man who killed Blake, bringing Ock and Spider-Man into each other's orbit. This is a really enjoyable issue. 
The art is a lovely bonus, Bernard Austin making it moody as hell, and the story is fun as well. Wolfman must agree. He told this story again, complete with shocking twist ending, in an issue of the new Teen Titans. The Jimbo Ryan Kent Blake storyline is wrapped up here, so Spectacular Annual Number 1 concerns itself with Spider-Man looking for Dr. Octopus. And men shall call him Octopus is a more routine Spider-Man Oc clash, but no less entertaining for all that. Oc is presumed dead at the end of this issue, believed to be drowned. Amazing Spider-Man issue 201 and 202 close out the masterworks with Wolfman and Pollard returning to write and draw respectively. Issue 201's cover is a lovely symbolic shot of Spider-Man and guest star The Punisher by John Romita and Bob McCloud. Manhunt and One for Those Long Gone take place a month after the events of issue 200. Aunt May is recovering and Jonah has had a serious nervous breakdown. More than that, Jonah is seriously loopy in this issue, accusing his friends of betraying him and blaming Spider-Man for everything, from the price of smokes to the State of the Union. Elsewhere, the Punisher here is still using those ridiculous mercy bullets, and is after one Lorenzo Jacobi, a scummy man with his hands in everything from running numbers to drugs, but Spider-Man interrupts. This pisses the Punisher off, and he wonders how Spider-Man could have known about the drug bust. He spies some photos on the cover of the Daily Globe, not Planet, no sorry Bob, and wonders how that could be when no photographer was present. This is actually a really good notion, and one wonders why no one's made this leap before. He tracks Peter down to his apartment, where he tells him he's learned the secret. Peter thinks he means the big one, you know, about him being Spider-Man, but the Punisher has taken a leap to the left, where the wrong conclusions lie, and theorised that Peter is actually a member of Jacoby's gang. Luckily, the Punisher wasn't around for annual number 13, where Peter was undercover as a gang member. Peter tells the Punisher all about his deal with Spider-Man, whereby Spider-Man calls Peter to tell him when he's strutting his funky stuff and to take photos, for which they split the money. Fortunately, the Punisher doesn't wonder how Spider-Man could know about the bust far enough in advance to call Peter. The Punisher cares not for this transgression regarding Peter's privacy and leaves. The Punisher isn't really very bright in this scene, he also found a spider tracer in Peter's sock drawer and still doesn't come to the right conclusions. Fortunately, he didn't find Peter's spur web shooters or web cartridge, which we've seen that he has duplicates of in previous issues, nor does he find the spur costume Peter has had on a few occasions, whenever the plot's called for it. Apparently, Peter's costumes are made of plotanium. Nevertheless, Peter's ruse has worked again and he's off the hook with the Punisher. Far more interesting is Wolfman shoring up of a new supporting cast for Peter. He's been developing Marcy Kane in Peter's day job as a teaching assistant, and over at the Daily Globe, he's been giving a lot of page time to Barney Bushkin, editor, seeding the mystery of publisher K.J. Clayton, and purring Peter up with hard-nosed reporter April May. Still a stupid name. April and Peter aren't actually getting along, and April could have been an interesting supporting character, but I think she disappears when Wolfman stops writing the title. Maybe she should come back and team up with Joy Mercado and Betty Brandt, and we could do a female version of Lou Grant. That may be fun. Bushkin wants Peter and April to work together on the Punisher Jacoby story, but April wants nothing to do with Peter Parker. April uses her contacts to infiltrate Jacoby's operation, whilst Peter uses his contacts to locate the Punisher. By which I mean Spider-Man stumbles onto where the Punisher is, largely by dumb luck. The Punisher tells Spider-Man a story of how, nearly a decade ago, he was working on closing Jacoby's heroin operation down when he was drugged and left for dead. The Punisher was rescued by a kid named Mehmet, who nursed him back to health before getting a job in narcotics himself. The Punisher has just learned Mehmet was killed by Jacoby two days before his marriage. Oh, where to begin again? 
Ignoring the cliches inherent in Mehmet's story, I know I'll make this audience care about this character who appears only in flashback for three panels by saying he was just about to marry. What about the Punisher? I'm glad you asked. This issue came out in November of 1970 now. Now, Wikipedia seems to have some discrepancies about when the Vietnam War ended, but it states that direct US involvement ended on the 15th of August 1973, but the Paris Peace Accords were ratified in January 1973. Either way, let's use 1973 as our benchmark. The Punisher made his debut in Amazing Spider-Man issue 129, the Howly Grail of comic books, at the end of 1973. This means Frank Castle only became the Punisher in the latter third of 1973. What the hell was the Punisher doing investigate a harrowing runner in Turkey in 1969? Shouldn't he have been in-country at that point? Anyway, the Punisher and Spider-Man track Jacoby down just as Jacoby pegs April for a knock. There's a bit more to this as there's some ducking and diving, but that's the gist of it. Spider-Man makes a rookie error in calling April by name, something the crack reporter misses even when he does it twice. Spider-Man stops the Punisher from killing Jacoby, but it's okay because in this comic where the Punisher uses a really stupid mercy bullets, because God forbid we should teach kids that bullets actually kill people, Jacoby is crushed between a car and a lamppost on panel. The Punisher lays some flowers on Mehmet's grave because he's a big softy, really, and the issue and this masterwork come to a close. I may have been a tad snarky here. There's nothing really wrong with these last two issues. I suspect it was the residue of the truly awful issue 200 rubbing off on me. Wolfman juggles his plots and subplots well, even if the actual story is weak sauce. This is another story whereby the Punisher and Spider-Man clash over the different methods. The Punisher's method has been to shoot people through the head, and one has to wonder why Spider-Man even puts up with it. Granted, this is a very neutered Punisher, largely thanks to mercy bullets, the best example I can think of of people trying to protect kids by totally sending the wrong message. Yeah, kids, the Punisher guns down 16 people before breakfast, but that's fine, because they're mercy bullets. You know, bullets that don't kill. Even as a kid, I thought this was dumb. As an adult, I think it's irresponsible. These two issues are a nice change of pace, though. The lead-up to issue 200 and that issue itself was so over-the-top, they became laughable. Wolfman tones that down a lot here, and the resulting read is all the more palatable for it. Pollard is a good artist, rather too reliant on Ditko swipes, as I've mentioned, but with competent storytelling. It would take other writers and another decade or so to be able to get a grasp on the Punisher and truly define him as the hard-ass character he would become. I do really like Marv Wolfman as a writer. His Teen Titans, Tomb of Dracula and Crisis on Infinite Earth work is exemplary, but he really over-egged the pudding on Spider-Man. Stories had sloppy mistakes and moments of head-scratching badness, but he did give us new characters and situations for Peter, and, in The Black Cat, gave us at least one truly memorable addition to the cast. As it is, though, I don't understand why this run is held in such high esteem. I welcome your opinions, lovely listeners. The masterwork closes with some original art, the original cover for the Spider-Woman issue Black Cat was to make her debut in, and the original cover sketch for Amazing Spider-Man 194, along with Dave Cockrum's do-over and some other bits of odds and sods. All the Marvel masterworks are worth buying, though, especially on the Comixology sales, where they're a little more expensive than dirt cheap, but still easily affordable. Attention! 
Attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST. Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes episode by episode the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Okay, let's just fix that because the cat's been visiting me. Uh, And we are back to look at the emails that I have received since the last time I spoke to you. Luke Giaconetti's emailed in with wall crawlers and loose cannons. Andy, the live-action Spider-Man TV series is another before-my-time genre show, which I discovered in pre-teenagerhood on the Sci-Fi Channel. Prior to that, I think I vaguely knew that there was a short-lived Spidey live-action show from the pages of Wizard Magazine, where anything not deemed either now or legendary was crap. But I was a burgeoning comics nutjob, so any media adaptation was fair game, and I remember watching quite a bit of this show on the network. What I don't remember is any details of any of the episodes. Truly, this was a generic 1970s show, with a few webhead bits thrown in. I'm sure part of this lack of recollection stems from my incredibly spotty memory, referenced in a previous email, but a good chunk of that has to fall at the feet of the series itself, which does little to make itself stand out and be memorable. I will agree with your assertion that the Spider-Man portions of the show were actually quite well done, especially for the era and budget, but the balance of the show has faded from my mental facilities into the ether. I do want to comment about the funky jazz second opening theme as well as the action theme. Both made me think of what we might call an urban type sound from the era, specifically something that might be heard in a black exploitation film, which was typically set in a city. I can also hear echoes of that style in some of the tunes used as incidental music in the 80s animated show Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, though obviously nothing quite so funky. All this said, I do think the show deserves a DVD Blu-ray release. It's a relic of its time, but I feel it should be out there as Spider-Man will always be an evergreen property. Regarding Lethal Weapon, I have to admit that whenever a commercial for the show comes on while watching a Fox show on demand, that is Gotham, Lucifer and the Gifted, I, to paraphrase Dave Sim, rolled my eyes theatrically, exhaled noisily and snorted derisively. The concept of making a TV series out of Lethal Weapon seemed half-baked and ill-conceived. Casting a primarily comedic actor in Damon Wayans didn't help my perception, so it was a big surprise to hear your thoughts on the show being so positive. I can honestly say that you are the first person I speak to with any regularity to actually talk about the show, or even, as far as I know, watch it. As a general rule, I value your opinion about hour-long TV action dramas, Buffy the Vampire Slayer notwithstanding. (laughs) Come on, Buffy's great. So I'm interested in at least checking Lethal Weapon for myself. Confession time. I have never, to the best of my recollection, watched any Lethal Weapon film from start to finish in one sitting. I know I've seen bits and pieces of the first one many times, from its run on HBO, and have memories of certain scenes from the first two sequels, but as far as having sat down to watch them, I got nothing. It's one of those weird situations I find myself in sometimes. Being born in 1980, I was too young to watch the original when it first hit home video, and then for whatever reason I never managed to circle back around to it when I was older. I own the first three, on VHS no less, inherited from my father as he converted his film library to DVD. I have many such films on VHS for this reason. And now I'm at the point where I feel frankly like an idiot for being part of my generation and having never watched Lethal Weapon. How'd you break that one out on a Saturday night when trying to pick a movie to watch after the kids go to sleep? Hey hun, let's watch this movie from 30 years ago, which everyone else my age has seen, but I was too dumb to watch in any of the intervening years. Yeah, that'll work. Related, I have never, again, to the best of my recollection, seen Top Gun all the way through. 
I have seen Days of Thunder countless times, though, as I was ten when the film was released, and evidently deemed old enough to watch the film with my father. Pretty certain I have that one on VHS as well. Anyway, enough of my meandering missives of mental misgivings. You keep recording the palace, and I will remain your faithful listener. Love the show, Steve. Luke. Well, thank you very much, Luke. I always appreciate your emails. If you check out Lethal Weapon, let me know what you think. I, I enjoy it. I think it's, it's it's you know, it's like leverage or burn notice. It's that kind of show, but it's fun. Uh, and it's never boring, which uh, gets it marks in my book. Mike Seguin has emailed in the amazing Japanese Spider-Man. Hey, Andy. Hello, Mike. Long-time listener and a first-time emailer to your wonderful show. I wanted to thank you for covering the live-action 1970s Amazing Spider-Man TV show. They're fun TV movies that I remember renting from my local blockbuster video store back in the early 90s. They aren't on par with the big-screen movies of recent years, but still merit well-deserved recognition for bringing Spidey into the live-action realm. I'm definitely going to have to revisit these films again in the near future. Thanks also for introducing me to Captain Scarlet. I'd never heard of it before and will now have to check it out. As well, I want to praise your episodes on the history of the A-Team and your look at the homecoming episode of the classic Bill Bixby Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk show, which is a great part of my childhood. I'll have to see if Man from Atlantis is my cup of tea, but thanks for talking about it. When I heard you were going to cover the 70s Spidey show, it instantly brought to mind the other live-action 70s Spider-Man show from Japan, which is glorious, ridiculous to watch. It's basically Spider-Man Power Rangers style. The show actually influenced the creation of Power Rangers, and if you haven't seen it, you need to do yourself a favour and watch it immediately. The plot is on Wikipedia. And there is an entire synopsis of the plot here that Mike sent me that sounds absolutely nothing like spider-man mike continues i also want to add that he uses a flying sports car that shoots missiles and enters a docking bay in lepardon so that he can battle gigantic alien monsters this show is truly so bad it's great to watch i've included a link to a site that has all the episodes with english subtitles oh thank you very much do you think you could do a commentary on the first couple of episodes on the podcast in the near future as i believe it's well worth your time and maybe even bring mike bailey along for the ride I'm sorry for the length of this email, but I really wanted to thank you for your wide range of excellent geeky topics that you cover and bring your attention to the awesomeness of the Japanese Spidey show. I look forward to your episode on Superman's upcoming 80th birthday celebration. Keep up all the great work you do on the Palace of Glittering Delights, Hey Kids Comics, and the Overlooked Dark Knight. Your shows are some of my favourite podcasts online. Cheers, Mike. Well, thank you very much, Mike. I will have a look at that Japanese spider-man series but it may be one of those that if it really is as bad good as you say it is would the commentary not just be me chuckling all the way through it <laughs> uh thank you for emailing in and thank you for all the nice things that you just said spider-man on telly is the final email tonight from daniel docketer hi andy absolutely loved your episode on the live action spider-man television series in the very early days of my spider-man fandom back when spider merchandise wasn't quite so prevalent watching this show was one of the few ways i could get my spider-man tv fix i sometimes like to joke that nicholas hammond was my favorite live action peter parker spider-man the truth is it's not a joke of all the actors who donned that famous red and blue outfit nicholas hammond wins almost by default it's not that Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, or Tom Holland are bad or anything. It's just that I'm a really picky Spider-Man fan. And I've yet to see a live-action adaptation that gets Spider-Man right. 
I have the same problem with Hound of the Baskervilles. There are multiple TV movie adaptations of this famous story, but I've yet to see a definitive version that truly captures the essence of the original novel whilst refraining from unnecessary deviations from the source material. That's exactly how I feel about The Amazing Spider-Man with Nicholas Hammond. It's not the best live-action version of my favourite comic book character, but it doesn't drive me up the wall the way the other versions have. I hope Spider-Man will be swinging by the palace again sooner rather than later. Well, he came by just this week. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for emailing in. Thank you, everybody who emailed in, as usual. If you want to email me about this or any other topics like the Japanese Spider-Man show, email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. As ever, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation and a proud member of the Two True Freaks network. Over on the twotruefreaks.com website, there is a link to Amazon. And if you go through that before you buy your crap, we get a bit of a kickback that helps keep the network running. Uh, I don't have any plans for what to do next. Again, I have my little notebook full of ideas, so we'll just see where the muse takes me. Thank you for joining me this time, though, and remember, it's all going to be all right. Thank you.